0: We want to be a church that prepares you to make a defense, to make that ready defense. Here's why, friends. um, Jesus is in my heart does not fly as evidence outside of Christian circles. It's true. We believe that Jesus is in our hearts through the spirit. We teach that. But go outside of Christian circles and they'll go, Jesus is in your heart. You truly are a strange weirdo, aren't you? wearing t-shirts that say one cross plus three nails equals four given is not a defense of who God is and what he claims to the world outside of Christian circles. Don't get me wrong. Jesus is in our hearts. We believe and we teach that. But we have to do better. If we are going to, by ourselves, live with confidence that our faith is not some irrational mumbo-jumbo, And we have to do better if we are going to reach an increasingly skeptical post Christian world in which we currently live with the gospel. Make no mistake, friends, this is a post Christian world we live in. So we want to help prepare you for that. And we're going to do that today uh, by answering this question Does God exist? We're going to answer this question, does God exist, with three classic arguments for theism. T-H-E-I-S-M just means for God. Three classic arguments for theism. Now, before we begin, parenthetically, let me just say, please note we are not yet today, we will later, we're not yet arguing for the existence of a personal Christian God as revealed in the Bible. That comes later. That begins next week. Today we are making an extra biblical, meaning outside of the Bible, argument for just the generic, the general concept of a self-existent, supernaturally powerful, meaning outside of nature powerful, a a self-existent and supernaturally powerful being that is beyond space and time and matter. Think about it. The Bible does not argue for God's existence. The Bible itself doesn't argue for God's existence, but assumes it from the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It assumes from the very beginning, God made the universe. And then it goes on to tell the story of how to have personal relationship with Him through Jesus. So today we're going to do something we never do. (laughs) We're going to go straight up science nerd argumentation. (laughs) Three of you are like, yes! Finally! 97% 97% of you are like, I told you this place. I don't know. <laughs> so we're going straight up science nerd today. Now, I, I, if you track, if you, if you focus, if you come along, <laughs> it's worth it, friends, because the stuff we're going to talk about today is mind-blowing, amazing stuff that tells us about how incredibly huge God really is beyond our, our, our greatest descriptions of him. So let's dive in. Three arguments for theism, starting with, number one, a cosmological argument, the beginning of the universe. Cosmological just means the cosmos, the universe. So we're going to make an argument that the, the universe had a beginning, So we do that by saying, A, three premises, everything that had a beginning had a cause, B, the universe had a beginning, and C, therefore, the universe had a cause. There are many ways to formulate the cosmological argument. This is one of the most simple ways, and it's simply that everything that had a beginning had a cause, the universe had a beginning, and then thirdly, therefore, the universe had a cause. So we're looking at this in the simplest form, three premises. Let's start with one premise at a time, number one. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. This premise is actually known as the scientific law of causality. It's the law of cause and effect. Everything that had a beginning had a cause for that beginning. Our first premise is actually one of the most important and most fundamental principles that undergirds all scientific inquiry. Francis Bacon, widely considered the father of modern science, he said true knowledge, knowledge of the truth, is knowledge by causes. Think about it. What scientists do is 100% predicated on the search for causes. Without premise one, without the law of cause and effect, there is no such thing as science. Which means, if you think about it, that this first premise, our first premise today for the existence of a God, is one of the most laboratory-proven and self-evident assertions in all of reality. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. Nothing happens without a cause. We all know this to be true. Everybody knows this to be true. And when you are standing on the side of the road explaining to the police officer why you hit that other car that I swear spontaneously came out of nowhere literally— The officer will look at you and laugh and go, "Uh uh-huh, right, like I've never heard that before. There is no way you're getting out of that ticket because that officer knows about the law of cause and effect. So, premise one is valid because science proves it. Every single time anyone makes a claim that came about because of scientific experimentation and inquiry. Premise one, true. Premise two says the universe had a beginning. This is a little more complicated, but track with me. This one is obviously the hardest premise um, to prove since the whole argument we talked about, the whole cosmological argument, it hinges on this part, whether or not this is true. So here are five lines of evidence straight from science that show that the universe had a beginning. The universe had a beginning that physicists and cosmologists call the big Bang. Okay, we'll go one at a time. Five lines of evidence that the universe had a beginning. First way is called the second law of thermodynamics. Second law of thermodynamics. I'm going to try to make this simple, tell you a few things to write down to help you. Thermodynamics is the study of matter and energy. Okay? Thermodynamics is the study of matter and energy. And you may want to write down these two laws because uh, we're going to do some logic in just a second. The first law of thermodynamics says that there's a finite amount of energy in the universe. There's a fixed amount of energy in the universe. Yes, those of you who are science nerds, there are other ways to say that, but you know that's true. So there is a fixed amount of energy in the universe. Think about this. There's either a fixed amount of energy or an infinite amount of energy. There are no in-betweens. It's one of those two options. And the first law of thermodynamics says it's a fixed amount of total energy in the universe. Second law of thermodynamics says the universe is running out of energy that it can use. It's running out of usable energy. This is called entropy, E-N-T-R-O-P-Y. This is the idea that nature is continuing to break down into disorder. Because the universe is running out of usable energy. So from there, it's simple logic. And we'll explain this a little bit differently in a second. Don't worry. (laughs) If there is a finite amount of energy in the universe and not an infinite amount of energy in the universe, and that finite amount of energy is constantly being used up, then there had to be a beginning to the universe. Let me make this simpler. (laughs) <laughs> Think of your car as representing the entire universe. Cars run on gas. Just like the universe, for a car to run, it has to constantly consume that energy, that gas. And so track with me. If your car has a finite, a fixed amount of gas capacity or ca- uh, gas energy in it, 10 units, 10 billion units, 10 billion Google units, whatever, doesn't matter how many. It has a fixed amount of gas. Whenever it is running, it is consuming gas. Would your car still be running right now if you had started it up an infinitely long time ago? Let me say that again. It's a logic problem that's a bit hard to follow. If your car has a fixed amount of gas and whenever it's running, it's consuming that gas, would your car still be running right now if you had it uh, started it an infinitely long time ago. No. It's exactly the same with the universe. Listen closely. This is, so, this is cool. If the universe were eternal and had been existence in existence forever before now, it would have already run out of the fixed amount of usable energy by now, and yet the lights are on. So the second law of thermodynamics points to what scientists continue to to discover more and more as they study the universe, that it had a beginning. We're just getting started. That's the first of five. Second, the universe is expanding, meaning space itself is literally expanding. In the 1920s, Edwin Hubble confirmed with his telescope, well, he confirmed with his telescope, What physicists had already been predicting mathematically, namely that the universe is literally expanding from a single point, think about this, it's not gonna make sense yet, it's expanding from a single point that is logically nothing. This single point that is logically nothing is what they call the singularity. Uh, Some of y'all probably heard that term, the initial singularity. It means that there is a mathematical and a logical point or a moment That is actually not space and not time and not matter from which all matter in the entire universe exploded into being. Listen to that again, because obviously this sounds slightly crazy. (laughs) But the most brilliant physicists and cosmologists and mathematicians today hold to this theory. The initial singularity means that there is a mathematical or logical moment or point that is not actually space, not time and not matter from which all matter in the entire universe exploded into being, which is why they call it the big Bang. What this means is that all matter in the entire universe as we know it exploded into being from an infinitely small non-space, non-time and non-matter thing or being that scientists cannot see, but they can prove exists logically and mathematically and astronomically. As I look out at you, I see heads exploding. (laughs) So to make things simpler, think of it this way. If we could watch a video of the history of the physical universe, but in reverse, all the current matter of the known universe would collapse back not to a basketball, not to a speck of dust, not to an atom, but to a mathematical and logical point or singularity that is not actually a point because it is not space, it is not time, and it is not matter, but it exploded to become all space, all time, and all matter. This means the scientists themselves believe it all came from nothing. Aristotle, the philosopher, said nothing is what rocks think about. But listen Listen to what uh, a British British philosopher and atheist said. He said according to the big bang theory the whole matter of the universe began to exist at a particular time in the remote past. A proponent of such a theory, at least if he is an atheist, atheists don't believe in god. A proponent of such a theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the matter of the universe came from nothing and by nothing. All right. Third way. Science proves the universe had a beginning. Five ways, this is the third, and the third is radiation from the Big Bang. Radiation from the Big Bang. In 1965, two scientists were taking measurements at Bell Labs in New Jersey and they detected a strange radiation on their instruments, on their antenna, and it turned out to be what scientists had begun predicting because of the Big Bang, the afterglow of the heat from the Big Bang, meaning they theorized if the Big Bang's real, then we could measure the after effects even now, still at at small levels. This discovery, uh, parenthetically for the nerds, this is helpful, this discovery was an end of the theories that the universe was in an eternal steady state when it comes to the density of matter. All the atheists and uh, and, and, and agnostics uh, held to the steady state theory that uh, the density of matter never changed in the entire universe. But this finding the radiation from the Big Bang ended that theory. So listen to what agnostic astronomer, meaning he wasn't sure about the whole question of God thing, Robert Jastrow, one of the most famous astronomers of all time, listen to what he said about this discovery of radiation from the Big Bang. He said, No explanation other than the Big Bang has been found for the fireball radiation. The clincher, which has convinced almost the last Doubting Thomas, is that the radiation discovered by Penzias and Wilson, those two from New Jersey, Bell Labs, has exactly the pattern of wavelengths expected for the light and heat produced in a great explosion. Supporters of the steady state theory have tried desperately to find an alternative explanation, but they failed. At the present time, the Big Bang theory has no competitors. Fourth way science proves the universe had a beginning was also predicted by the Big Bang. And these are called galaxy seeds. Knowing what the scientists know about the expanding universe, the discovery of the radiation from the Big Bang, they began to predict that there should be slight variations in the temperature of that radiation. Okay? Here's what you need to know about it. (laughs) The slight temperature variation meant that matter could begin to form to become what we now know as galaxies. They called the slight variations in temperature ripples, and those first clusters of matter, they called galaxy seeds. So what they did is they spent $200 billion on the Cosmic Background Explorer, and NASA not only measured the ripples, this was in 1989 when they sent it, they not only measured the ripples, the variation in temperature, but they could take infrared pictures of those galaxy seeds, which are, are in effect pictures of the beginning of the universe. Now, check this out. Think about this. The data they compiled on that satellite shows that the big, the big Bang explosion itself was fine-tuned exactly so that there was enough matter to cause galaxy formations as we have them, but not enough to cause the universe to collapse back on itself because of gravity. That's one of a number of what we'll talk about in just a second, Anthropic constants. We're getting complicated here, but what this shows is that if there was any variation in what originally happened, not one of us would be here. Hmm. Sounds like a plan. The late Stephen Hawking, who was a world-famous astronomer and physicist, he called the discovery of these galaxy seeds perhaps the most important discovery in the 20th century, if not all time. The leader of the Cosmic Background Explorer said, if you're religious, it's like looking at God when you look at the, the data they brought back. Fifth, fifth way science proves that the universe had a beginning is something we're just going to touch on. Um, and you'll see when it comes up why. Um, Einstein's theory of general relativity. We're going to just touch on it because I am totally unable to break out high-level math. And probably two of us in our congregation would understand it well. So here's what Einstein's theory proves mathematically. Think about this to five decimal places. Time, space, and matter have an absolute beginning and are not eternally existent as atheist physicist once hoped. Time, space, and matter have an absolute beginning and they are not eternally existent as they once thought. So Einstein's theory is a mathematical reason why the universe had a beginning. So let's wrap up our first of our three arguments for theism. The beginning of the universe, the cosmological argument. If premise one is true, which is the law of causality that states that everything that had a beginning had a cause, and premise two is true, which says the universe had a beginning, it necessarily follows that premise three is true, that the universe had a cause. The universe had a beginner, (laughs) capital B. Now, does this prove God's existence? Maybe not yet the personal God of the Bible, not yet the personal God as he reveals himself in scripture, but it definitely gets us headed that direction as we can already see, think about this, A self-existent being is the only kind of being that makes the crazy stuff we just talked about possible. A supernaturally being, a supernaturally powerful being, uh, meaning above and beyond nature, a supernaturally powerful being that is beyond space, outside of time, outside of matter, that is required by science and math and logic in order to bring the universe into being. Listen to Robert Jastrow again. This is a great quote. He says, Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces. They cannot hope to discover that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. First argument, cosmological argument. Second, we have two more to go, and we're gonna go way too fast through these. We only have time to scratch the surface um, and we won't do them justice, but they're worth being aware of. Our second argument for theism today is that the universe is designed for human life. This is a this is a big claim. The universe is designed for human life. It's a a mixture, actually, of the teleological argument. Teleological just means something that's designed for a purpose. There's a goal in mind. Teleological argument and the anthropic principle. Anthropic just means um, making human life happen. So in basic terms, there is an absolute mountain of growing evidence that shows that the universe is extremely finely tuned with a design and a purpose behind it to support human life here on Earth. Think of it this way. I'll go slowly. This is mind-boggling. Every, literally every single biological system in the universe that does anything only works if all the individual smallest parts of the system which literally do nothing by themselves, are put together in a certain way for a certain purpose. As if, hmm, designed for that purpose. Literally every single biological system in the universe that does anything. Only works if the individual smallest parts, which literally do nothing by themselves, are put together in a certain way for a certain purpose, as if designed for that purpose. That's so cool. It gets better. There are quite a few of what we call these anthropic constants that show how finely tuned the universe is to support human life on Earth. For example, 21% of the Earth's atmosphere is made up of oxygen. If that oxygen level went up to 25%, fires would erupt spontaneously everywhere. And if it were about 15-ish percent, humans would suffocate. Life could not have happened in the first place. And if that happens now, life would eventually go away for us as humans. The 23 degree axis of the Earth, if altered just slightly, would mean extreme temperatures one way or the other that do not support human life. Same with the speed of the Earth's rotation, tectonic plate activity, the thickness of the Earth's crust, and we're just getting started. If the Earth's atmosphere were only slightly more or less transparent, either not enough or too much solar radiation would reach us and life on Earth would cease to exist. If the gravitational interaction between the moon and the earth were just slightly different, we would experience extreme tidal effects and climactic instabilities that would render life on earth impossible. If the carbon dioxide levels on earth were slightly higher than now, we'd all burn up because of a massive greenhouse effect, and if they were just slightly lower, we would suffocate and plants could not photosynthesize. If the gravitational think about this. This is this one's crazy. If the gravitational force of the earth were 0.3701%, I'll say that again. <laughs> if the gravitational force of the earth were 0.0, meaning 37 zeros, 1% different, our sun would not exist and neither would we. Here's the crazy part. If you took just these nine or so that we mentioned The mathematical chances of human life spontaneously happening anywhere, let alone Earth, go down to the point of functionally impossible. Hold on to that thought. But if you take all 150 or so anthropic constants that scientists have discovered so far, the chances of human life occurring spontaneously on its own anywhere in the universe are one in 10 to the 138th power. That's the chances of all 150-plus anthropic constants that we currently have discovered uh, being able to spontaneously make human life happen anywhere on not just this planet, but in the entire universe. Now, think of that humongous number that none of us can conceive. Given that there are only 10 to the 22nd planets in the universe and only 10 to the 70th power atoms, in the entire universe, there is in effect zero chance that any planet in the universe has the conditions to support human life without an intelligent designer. We can say, within reason, (laughs) that to believe that human life happened here on Earth by chance is actually to believe against the evidence of science and math and astronomy and logic. The great physicist who was an atheist, Stephen Hawking, commenting about these anthropic principles, he said this in his book, A Brief History of Time. He said, the remarkable fact is that these values, the values of these numbers, seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Arno Penzias, who is one of the two discoverers of the radiation afterglow, he said it like this. He said, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and yet delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. First two of our three arguments. Our last argument is going to be absurdly short, which is sad because it's so good, The moral argument is perhaps the most well-attested in our experience. Not only is it a logically sound argument, but it comes from human experience. So the third argument for theism is the moral argument. The moral argument, at its most basic, says that if God does not exist, there are many ways to say this, but we're going to say it this way. If God does not exist then objective moral values and duties do not exist. That's the first premise. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective meaning outside of us as opposed to subjective. That's the first premise. Premise number two, (laughs) but objective moral values and duties do exist. Meaning every human being who has ever lived has a very passionate, instinctive, internal sense of right and wrong regardless of culture, regardless of beliefs, regardless of what they say. So premise two is objective moral values and duties do exist. And then premise three is easy. God exists. Now, here are two important reasons why this argument holds true. There are others, but we're just going to talk about two of them here. First reason is this. Every moral claim that something is right or wrong or good or bad or even better or worse than another is a claim based on a higher standard or authority. Which means that every single time any human being in all of history has said anything like, hey, that's not fair or that's an injustice or even the opposite, that is amazing. That is beautiful. That is a statement that affirms that person's belief in the existence of an objective moral value that necessarily comes from an authority or a standard. The second reason this holds true is that every moral claim, every moral, I'm sorry, uh, all people everywhere, the second reason why is that all people everywhere have this instinctive sense of moral rightness and wrongness, period, even if they actually believe or behave or talk about something different. All people everywhere have an instinctive sense of moral rightness and wrongness, period. Even if they actually state a different belief or behave otherwise. To make the point, (laughs) track with me. Every one of us has this instinctive sense of moral rightness and wrongness. We believe that things are right, and yet every single one of us has actually behaved otherwise. The Bible word for that is sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To make the point even further, if someone says they don't believe in objective moral values, (laughs) then all you have to do is kick them in the shins and say, are you still sure you don't believe in objective moral values? Think about that. I'm kidding, of course. Please don't do that. The preacher said kick you in the shins if you believe in subjective moral values. That's not what I'm saying the reaction reveals the instinctive, internal sense of right and wrong, regardless of what they actually say, regardless of how they behave. You see, if there is no objective moral standard of right and wrong that comes from a lawgiver, then all human behavior truly is a subjective matter of opinion. And it's, it's yours, it's mine, it doesn't matter. It's all a matter of preference and it can all be indifference, and not one person in the universe has an actual leg to stand on to say that murder is wrong. That that, that raping of children for pleasure is wrong. There is not a moral objective standard of truth without a lawgiver. Even famous atheist Richard Dawkins admits this. He admits that in a world without God, in terms of moral standards... He says, there can be no evil and no good. He said, it is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So atheists cannot justify morality without something very much like the concept, the Christian concept of a God who is the lawgiver. Now to wrap it all up, Here's the crazy part of the three arguments we've made today. And this isn't just what they call a God of the gaps argument. Whenever you're at a, you know, an illogical moment or you're not sure what happens next, you just say, hey, God, God did it. You throw God into the gap of what you don't know, right? That's a God of the gaps argument. This isn't just some God of the ga- gaps argument where we just throw in the Christian concept of God to fill in things we don't understand. This is something today that we have reasonably explained by using reason, logic, mathematical, scientific, astronomical evidence. So given the argument that we've made today, it is a reasonable and rational thing to say that all of reality must be caused by a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, self-existent, and supernaturally powerful being that created the contingent universe in which we actually live and which, hmm, curiously sounds like the God of the Bible. Let's pray, friends. Father in Heaven, we acknowledge in our moments of cogency and clarity of thought that who You are and what You've done, only You can do and only You can be. And so in the quiet of this moment, Lord, we acknowledge that the reality of who You are is worthy of our worship. That who you are and what you've done is worthy of us stewarding all of the resources of our lives in ways that bring you glory and that point to your holiness and that magnify your name and that make clear the truth that in the person of Jesus, You came to reveal Yourself to us in ways we couldn't possibly know unless You came to seek us out. So we love You for that, Lord. We love You for putting together the universe in a way that brings us to a moment like right now where we could bow before You in our hearts and say, You alone are worthy of our whole lives. We love you, Lord. It's your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.